Welcome back. Let's find our places. As you find your places, go ahead and get your Bibles and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. We're continuing in our systematic study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in the middle of chapter number 5 today. And as you're getting ready with your Bibles in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let me just start off by asking you all a couple of questions. Who here is sick of sin? Yeah, amen. Whether it's your own or somebody else's that dumps over on you, amen? Who here can't wait for the millennium? Yeah, amen. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears. No more lost people. Listen, life is hard, right? It's messy. It's complicated. People do dumb things. They hurt themselves. They hurt others. And what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is relational purity. Relational purity. That's kind of the theme in these two chapters, 5 and 6. And last week, if you were with us, we saw the necessity of exercising what we call church discipline of some publicly sinning members of a church. There were some terrible things that were going on in the church, and, well, the rest of the body of the church, for some crazy reason, didn't seem to mind that much. And that theme of even the church kind of having some level of pride throughout that time carries into verse number six where we're going to be picking it up today where it starts out by saying your glorying is not good and the idea your glorying is not good really what he's trying to communicate is that listen church quit being so pious quit being so proud of your spirituality especially when there's sin in the camp. You see, if we want to fellowship with the Lord, we have to live in holiness. The Lord requires it. The Bible says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we walk in darkness, if we think we're fellowshipping with the Lord but we walk in darkness, we're, we're kidding ourselves. We're lying. It's just not true. But the truth of the matter is, walking in the light of holiness all the time, it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. So what we're going to see today as we continue in chapter 5 is what I've titled this message is God's Guide to Sin-Free Living. I think he gives us a guide to living sin-free. Now, if that interests you, right, wouldn't it be great? I mean, just think about it. Wouldn't it be great if we could actually live that way today? I mean, how different would your daily, weekly routine look if you weren't engaged in sin and people around you weren't engaged? You almost can't imagine it. You almost can't imagine it because it's everywhere, right? Well, listen, we may never achieve sinless perfection on this planet, and that is true. We'll never fully achieve sinless perfection on this planet. But you know what? We can live victoriously. We really can. Sin does not need to reign in our mortal bodies anymore. And that's really what we're going to look at. And you know what? It's not that hard to figure out. What we're going to see today is a review of some things that probably a lot of you already know. 
And so with that in mind, we're only going to look at three verses, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, 7, and 8. Go ahead and follow along. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's all we're going to look at. Pretty straightforward. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll jump into it. So Heavenly Father, we're very thankful and we come before you anticipating some real handles, some real ideas. What, Lord, can we do so that our lives have less and less and less sin affecting it? And so that we can walk in victory, we can walk in joy, we can walk in freedom in the Holy Spirit. Lord, teach us, show us how these things come together. We, we hate it when we sin. We wish that there wasn't, it wasn't around anymore. We can't wait for the day that you come and do away with it completely and we live in your kingdom blissfully. Lord, help us even now take real steps forward to make that a reality in our lives. I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us. Lord, there's a lot of us in this room. Everybody has their own version of what they're struggling with. And for that person, their version is critically important. I pray that your spirit would reveal the answer to each and every one of us so that we can know how to walk forward and glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if we're going to see this guide to sin-free living, we're going to start with our very first point, and that is purity must be established. It must be established. And so he says, your glorying is not good. And then he says, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And if we looked back at the context, the context directly refers to some gross sexual perversion that was going on in the church at that time. Um, but the way he asked that question, know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? It's like he's saying, don't you realize that, church? He, he's saying, have you forgotten that just a little bit affects everybody? Don't you realize that? Now, in case you're not used to the terminology, leaven literally is just the yeast that you put in bread dough. You put a little bit in, right, and it permeates through all of the dough, and when it does, it causes the dough to rise. You don't put leaven in bread, then the bread doesn't rise, right? But when the leaven gets into the bread and it permeates through the whole lump, notice this, what it really does transforms it into a different substance it transforms it into something that it was not previously and with bread it makes it rise when it bakes for example so what he's trying to tell us is that there's no area that it doesn't affect leaven with bread sin with your lives that's what he says a little affects all and you know what it does? It makes you somebody you've never been before. It turns you into an entirely different person. Which, by the way, especially for you young people, that's good to know. Because there's all kind of pressures on you these days to just dabble with sin just a little bit. And sometimes you're not always thinking about the long-term effects that it's going to have on you. Listen, we, don't, we adults are not immune to it. 
But man, when you're young, the pressure is on you to just try just a little bit. And when you do that, man, it just gets in there. And before you know it, you're sorry. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 6, Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we've taken no bread? Which when Jesus perceived, he's reading their minds, right? He said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves? Because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many baskets ye took up? In other words, it's not about bread, y'all. It's not the physical thing. How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread? We can always make bread out of stones. We can do anything we want. That you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12. Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And for a little further clarity, we see in another place Jesus say almost the same thing in Luke chapter 12, first two verses where it says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, First of all, beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. So that when we compare Scripture with Scripture, what we see is that leaven is the doctrine of legalism and the very essence of hypocrisy. That's what leaven is. The Pharisees were the religious legalists. They were the people who obeyed all the external points of the law. If the law required them to do something, they made sure that they did all those things, but not internally. So on the outside, they were legally fulfilling their written requirements, but on the inside, the spirit of the law and the transformation of the inner man never took place. And while they were living that kind of a life, they were going around and scrutinizing and judging everybody else's external appearance, having no clue as to what's really going on on the inside. Those are the Pharisees. That's their doctrine of legalism. And as a result, Jesus understands, and we should understand, they then are the ultimate hypocrites. The ultimate hypocrites. You ever wonder what Jesus thought of these guys? You ever wonder, I mean, you don't have to really wonder because in Matthew chapter 23, he told them to their face, which I have to say, I appreciate. I mean, Jesus was no coward. Jesus wasn't hiding behind something and whispering. If Jesus had something to say, he would say it. And he said it for everybody's benefit. So we read of this in Matthew 23, and we pick, you can read the entire chapter. You really should. Pick it up in verse 25, where he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. There you go. And notice the characteristics. For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess. So here they are trying to look all bright and shiny and washed and clean and nice, but on the inside, 
They're filthy and they're dirty and they've got excesses in their own life and extorting others to do what they want them to do. He goes on and he says in verse 26, Thou blind Pharisee, don't you realize you can't even see? You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter that the outside of them may be clean also. Because when God transforms us, it's always from the inside out, never from the outside in. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. He says, You are like a raised tomb of the dead that they just gave a clean, whitewashed coat of paint. And on the outside, the building looks clean and beautiful. But what's on the inside? Dead man's bones. That's you, Pharisee. That's you, hypocrite. And it's all connected with the leaven. What they espoused, Jesus calls leaven. Now, what's written in verse number 6, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, that phrase is repeated exactly in another place. That's Galatians 5 and verse number 9. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. For those of you Bible students, you know Galatians is the book that is all about religious legalism and how these Judaizers were trying to put the real Christians back into the bondage of the law and keeping the details of the law that were no longer applicable to them. And so this religious legalism that was placed over them, again we see this admonition that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You can't allow any of that stuff in your midst or it'll eventually get to everything. And the doctrine of legalism, well, it is hypocrisy because it makes you think you're serving God by all of the religious ritual services that you go through, but really you're not. And that's why, friends, Having sound doctrine matters. You have to know the truth of the Scripture rightly divided so that truth alone can make you free. Because otherwise you're just going to be confused in a sea of philosophical debate. And there's a lot of intelligent people that debate philosophy, but there's no real truth to any of it. You have to have sound doctrine because these other hypocritical ramblings and pharisaical legalistic judgments, well, it destroys your walk with the Lord. It just destroys your walk with the Lord. So without question, wherever you find leaven in the Bible, it's bad. It's always negative. And that's important to know when you get to a passage like Luke chapter 13, 20 and 21. Because here we have Luke's version of Jesus telling multiple parables. And he gets to this little parable and he says, And again he said, Whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? The spiritual kingdom in which we all live as born-again Christians, right? Whereunto shall I liken it? Then he says this, It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. So now we understand how leaven works. It gets through all things. But here's the problem. If you don't understand that leaven is always bad in the Scriptures, you're going to get to Luke 13, and you might erroneously conclude, like many commentators do if you read commentaries, 
Many of them will take Luke 13 and they will say that the woman in the parable is the church and the leaven is the gospel. And the church will take the gospel and it'll sow it into the society of this world until the whole world gets the gospel. That's just not true. That's not accurate. That's, that's, that's a false teaching and that brings about the idea of what some people will call post-millennialism. The church works and works and works to make the world better and better and better and when we finally achieve our goal, then the Lord says, well, thanks for doing it and I'm just gonna come back now and sit on the throne but that's not what the Bible teaches. Leaven is always bad. It's not the woman of the church taking the gospel leaven to the world until everybody's saved. The leaven is bad, and so the woman is bad. You want to find who this woman really is? You're going to have to look in Revelation chapter 17 Revelation chapter 18. You know who she is? She's a religious, spiritual harlot. That's who she is. She's a bad woman. In the book of Proverbs, she's referred to as a strange woman, right? And what's she doing? She's hiding bad doctrine in three measures of meal. Some commentators want you to think that uh, the three measures of meal might represent all of what is commonly referred to as Christendom. So it would be the branch of the Catholic Church, the branch of the Orthodox Church, and the branch of the Protestant Church. Well, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I'm not exactly sure. But since I know that leaven is doctrine, then it's got to represent the doctrines that are trouble, right? And there particularly are three that behave like leaven. They're legalism. You can write them down if you want. I didn't put them in your notes. They're legalism, ritualism, and fanaticism. And basically where you're going to find these doctrines located among greater Christianity is that the legalists are the Calvinists and that the ritualists are the Catholics and that the, the, the fanaticists, if we say it that way, well, that would be the charismatics. And the idea is if you meet any one of those groups of people, if they are dialed into their particular doctrine, eternal election and predestination, then that little bit of leaven permeates the whole lump and everywhere they read in the Bible is eternal election and destination, predestination. Uh, the Catholics are all about their rituals and their sacraments and everything that they read so much so that no other church is the real church but their church. It affects everything that they say and they do. And the Charismatics have their miraculous signs and wonders and gifts and tongues and all these things and they read them in every passage of the Bible. It's a little bit of leaven, it permeates the whole thing. Luke chapter 13 is a warning to the church of the leaven that can get in. None of it's any good. It all destroys your fellowship with him. So if we get back to our theme and say, for our purity to be established, well, back to your notes, all known sin must be purged. And so that's what we see in verse number 7. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. Clean it out. Get rid of it because just a little bit ruins everything. We see this theme in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, speaking of Jesus Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that's what Jesus Christ did for you when he died for you on the cross. He purged our sins. He cleaned them up. He got rid of them. He did that for you 
And when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, then that purging, that cleansing of sin applies to you. And if you've never received the cleansing of your sin, it's only because you haven't received the free gift of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ dying in your place. He purges our sin as it's applied to our eternal judgment. This is our standing before the Lord. But this letter is written to a church who has already experienced salvation. So there has to be some purging for us as we continue to walk with the Lord because the truth of the matter is, even though we receive Christ as our Savior, we all still struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We all have problems. So the question becomes, and this is a great question you could talk about over lunch today, what should a Christian do when he sins? What should a Christian do when he sins? And the typical answer that everybody is going to give is really not the right answer. You might be surprised. The typical answer most people would give is, well, he should confess it. He should confess it. You say, how do you know that? You say, well, 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just, forgive us our sins, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, yeah, well, that's good. Isn't that good? Well, okay, yeah, that's good. Uh, there is a particular application of 1 John 1, 9. But it's not the, it's not the whole answer. It's not the complete answer. Because the Lord has a lot more for us that we need to understand. So let's stick with the Pauline epistles. Let's stick with Paul writing to the churches and the only other Pauline reference to the word purge. It's in 2 Timothy 2.21. 2 Timothy 2.21. If a man therefore purge himself, so it's something we do. It's something a Christian has to do. It's not what Jesus did. That's not what we're talking about. If a man therefore purge himself from these... He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. So establishing purity in your life and the purging out of the leaven of sin in your life is a prerequisite to being used by God, prepared unto every good work. You can't serve the Lord in power and effectiveness if there's sin in your life. And so he says, if a man therefore purge himself from these. Well, you guys have been in English class long enough to know that that refers to something, doesn't it? So we have to go back and figure out what the two things are it refers to. Well, we're going to go back to verses 19 and 20. First and foremost, it applies to you individually, like it says in verse 19. It deals with your iniquity. Individually, you need to purge yourself of your own iniquity, of your own sin. 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. So if you are truly born again and in the family of God, hopefully you know it. God knows it, right? And let everyone that's in that category that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's what you're to do. You're to purge yourself from these things that try and work their way into your life and stain your soul and eventually permeate into everything that you do because you can't stop it. So there's an individual application with your iniquity, but there is also a corporate application, and that is what we call and see in the Scriptures dishonorable vessels. Dishonorable vessels because 2 Timothy 2.19 is followed by, you ready for this? 2 Timothy 2.20 
which says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor, the ones of gold and silver, and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these vessels of dishonor, right, then he'll be clean and usable for every good work. Well, this particular context takes us back to the literal context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where they had to exercise church discipline. They found some very dirty vessels in their church. And the Holy Spirit through Paul says, they've got to go. They've got to go. And so you're going to purge yourself of dishonorable vessels. Listen, just because you're saved and your sins have been forgiven does not mean you don't still struggle with sin. We know that. King David, this is an Old Testament reference, but it's a really good picture of our lives. In in Psalm 51 and verse number 7, King David said this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What's going on at this point in his life is that King David, in my opinion, is a beautiful picture of a New Testament Christian believer because David, unlike others in the Old Testament, received something called sure mercies. God had mercy on David in areas where David deserved legal punishment, including the death penalty, and did not exercise it upon David. David received sure mercies. Others in the Old Testament didn't receive sure mercies. David had, as a result, what we enjoy in the New Testament, eternal security. Your salvation can never be lost. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. The Holy Spirit of God would come on people. He would leave people. There's so much evidence for that. So in this case, David is a picture of a New Testament believer. But if you remember what was going on and what he's asking God to cleanse him from, was that interaction he had where he stole another man's wife named Bathsheba. And so he was impure in some sexual conduct, and he knew that he was dirty, and he had to be purged of that sin. In Proverbs chapter 16, we learn an amazing truth. It says in verse 6, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, Men depart from evil. You want to purge the iniquity from your life? Well, you need some mercy and you need some truth. David received mercy because he was willing to be truthful with the Lord, right? It says, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Which means you now know why some men won't depart from evil. They have no fear of the Lord. You know what should keep you clean? The fear of the Lord. You know what should cause you to pause before you engage in that wicked act, sir, ma'am? That God is watching, and he will make all accounts right one day. That fear of the Lord ought to keep you between the white lines. It really ought to. And that's what he says. People who don't depart from evil, well, they don't fear the Lord. Once purity is established or reestablished, as the case might be in your life, we need to go to the next point, and that would be that purity must be embodied. It must be embodied. We're back in verse 7, and it says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, 
a new lump. So praise the Lord, man. We're new creatures. Praise the Lord, we get a fresh start. I don't know about you. Your story might be different. Maybe you were saved at a very young age. Maybe you didn't have a past that was a little ugly, that was a little dirty. I did have that. When I came to know the Lord, man, that day I bowed my head and received the Lord. I'm telling you, it was a fresh new day. I saw the whole world differently. The birds sang a little louder. The grass was a little greener. The sun shined a little brighter. Everything was just new. I felt it. I couldn't describe it. I just knew God gave me a redo. He gave me a do-over. And I thought, oh my, this is unbelievable. Now maybe you didn't feel something like I felt it. It doesn't really matter. The truth of the matter is, that's what he gives you in salvation. But the truth also is that even after your salvation, people find themselves, intentionally, unintentionally, dabbling with leaven. It gets all up in their world, and they need another do-over, don't they? Well, you don't need to get saved again. That's already taken care of. But man, this sin is so poisoning you. You're useless to the Lord. And you're probably miserable deep down inside. You're probably miserable. What you need is a fresh start. You need to figure out how to move forward from here. And can I just tell you something? You you have to understand this next point. So I put this in your notes. You can't just be emptied without being filled. You can't just be emptied without being filled. This is a particular problem in a lot of the secular programs for drug rehabilitation. You get people who are addicted to different substances and then they just decide, I've gotten in too much trouble, I've been in too many jails, I've been in all these situations and bad things have happened. I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And they literally do it with their own willpower. God bless them. It makes them better citizens. But if all you do is clean out and you don't fill that void with something good, well... That's a dangerous situation, and Jesus spoke of that in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, there you have it, he walketh, he, the spirit, walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return unto my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. You see, the the life of that guy where he used to live, it's all cleaned up now. He has purged out all the bad stuff. Then goeth he, this devil, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first And Jesus says, even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. So there is something about, you clean up your life. It's empty, it's swept, it's put in order, and it's garnished. That garnishing is a a beautifying. And I believe the Lord is pointing towards a religious garnishing. There's a lot of people who clean up their own life. They turn over a leaf and they get their life clean. They do it in their own power. And what they do is is they become religious. 
And what happens is the devil doesn't care what it is as long as it's not genuinely the Holy Spirit that's filling you. And he comes back with seven other worse demonic spirits. And you could be a clean, living, religious person whose end and damnation will be yet even worse than when you were a junkie. Neither of which is desirable. But you can't just be emptied without being filled. A lot of people get clean, but they don't fill the void. And you're not better off. And that's why a lot of people go back, by the way. That's why a lot of people go back to their old habits. But then he introduces in verse number 7 this statement. It's kind of interesting. Right here he says, you may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. And he says, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Because the Passover, the Old Testament feast, and we're going to look at that in a second, is embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ our Passover. So with that in mind, I want you to turn with me and look in Exodus chapter number 12, and I want to read for you where the Passover is initiated. And the context is the children of Israel in bondage to Egypt, a type of the world, and they finally get a deliverer, a redeemer to show up. His name is Moses. And they go and they pour out these nine different plagues over Egypt to eventually set the children of Israel free from their bondage and let them go out into the wilderness and eventually make it to the promised land. And the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, and that's what we read in Exodus chapter 12. So with that, just follow along. I'm going to read fairly quickly, starting in verse number 3. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take unto them every man a lamb, according to his house, a house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make for the count of your, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it unto the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper po uh, posts and on the upper posts of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast it with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And it goes on in verse 14, and it says, you're going to turn this into a memorial and a feast for the rest of your days. And this Passover feast becomes a regular thing that the Jews would have understood as a legal requirement of their law. But you know what you see where it says Christ, our Passover? God gives you the key to understand what he was really pointing to in type and in picture from that Old Testament Passover to point towards the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And you know why that is? Because first and foremost, what we see in this Passover is the nation of Israel, what happened to them? They were through that event saved by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? So John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming to be baptized in John chapter 1 and verse 29, behold, what does he call him? The Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the very Passover Lamb. But not only that, they were to take the blood of the Lamb, and by the way, the whole congregation of Israel kills it in the evening. That's what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. And I think we have a graphic. We have it put on the side post and the upper post of the door. Well, isn't that interesting, the mind that laid that out back in Exodus chapter 12 in the days of Moses? He didn't just say smear it all over the door. He said put it in three particular locations. How did he know that when Jesus Christ was going to be crucified, there'd be a thief on the left side and a thief on the right side? See, there's three stains of blood that day, but the one in the middle is higher than the other two because he's deity. He's not a thief like the other two. He is the Lamb of God. He was crucified in the middle, and the location of even the placement of the blood points out the fact that this is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go back to Exodus chapter chapter 12 and look through these verses where he begins to present how they're going to set this thing up and he says in verse number three when he refers to the lamb he says a lamb then he goes into verse number four and he says the lamb and then he goes into verse number five and he says your lamb wasn't that interesting progression because if you're going to be saved by the blood of the lamb you know you first and foremost need to get yourself a lamb but let me just tell you it can't just be any lamb You better get the Lamb, which is the Lamb of God. But even having the understanding that there is one and only one Lamb of God, until you make it your Lamb, you're not saved by the blood. You're not saved by the blood. What is the mind that put that thing together? And you go all the way down to verse number 13 of Exodus, and he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you in judgment the passover literally means saved from wrath saved from death saved from judgment that's what the passover literally is christ our passover is our salvation that's what it is so christ embodies the passover but we need to embody purity so when we receive jesus christ as our savior he lives in us And we embody purity by walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. A walk is a step-by-step-by-step process. I walk in the Spirit this step. I have to walk in the Spirit the next step. It's a continual lifestyle of choosing to allow the Holy Spirit of God to fill your life that has now been purged from sin so that you walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. When I was newly saved on the campus of Arkansas State University back in 1983, in my dormitory room, I I taped... Galatians 5.16 on the mirror over the sink in my room. Every morning I get up and brush my teeth and all that and, and I would see Galatians 5.16. Walk in the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because when I got saved, I came out of a life of, well, 
a pretty well-exercised flesh. <laughs> Let me just leave it at that. And I wanted to remember as I was walking to class, walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. I just wanted to remind myself. And so I just pasted the Bible verse on my wall. It just helped me. It just helped me to do that. That's what the Lord wants for us. Now, historically, this Passover feast is immediately followed by another Old Testament feast, and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we see that in Leviticus chapter 23, where they're laid out. Starting in verse 4, it says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which ye shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month, at even, is the Lord's Passover. So the fourteenth day of the first month, regardless of what day of the week it falls on, will always be the Lord's Passover every time. Then, on the fifteenth day of the same month, the very next day, uh, same month is the feast of unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So the feast of Passover initiates then a seven-day feast of unleavened bread where the Jewish households were to purge out every speck of yeast, every bit of leaven they could find anywhere from a year's worth of cooking. They clean it all out and they throw it all away and for seven days, no leaven whatsoever, well, that's to picture something for us. Since leaven is sin, removing it from our house is sanctification. That's what it is. And we're dealing with that progressive sanctification after salvation because, well, 1 Corinthians 5 is written to a church, church of saved people. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, Christian, and this feast lasts seven days. Seven is the number of completion. It's the number of fullness. It's the number of maturity. In other words, you'll co continue to completely grow to full and complete maturity with the Lord if you can keep the leaven out. If you can keep the leaven out. God's will for your life clearly is sanctification. Clean living. Not just emptying, but filling. Right? That's why Ephesians 5.18 be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess. Don't let other excessive sinful behaviors fill your life, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And then you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the daily application of this thing really can be challenging. The devil's sneaky. The flesh goes with you wherever you go. It's not easy. And he knows that. So he provided a way to help us keep our houses clean, and that's our third point. Purity must be extended. Extended. How can we keep ourselves clean and pure for our entire lives? Life is messy. Clutter happens, right? You have to keep cleaning your house, or over time, quickly enough, things just pile up. Things just clutter up. And if you don't take time to clean it up and put it away and throw it away and to do whatever you need to do, well, then your house is a big mess, right? And, you know, you don't invite people over because you're embarrassed for them to see. Well, what about the life that is represented by that house? They never take time to clean up. They never do spring cleaning. They never do summer cleaning, fall cleaning, or winter cleaning. And things just clutter up and gather up and clutter up and gather up. And, well, then your life is just... It's just a big mess. 
And as long as people only look at the outside of the house that might be painted white and look nice, they don't realize that on the inside, you might, well, you might be a hypocritical Pharisee, for all you know. So what we need to do is, and I put this in your notes, healthy habits must be initiated. So be purged, be filled, but then you need to start setting up some healthy habits in your life to go forward to extend this purity, right? That's what biblical counseling is. That's what we do with people who are struggling and come into us for help. We help them identify what's wrong. The right answer to what should a Christian do when he sins, the right answer is stop it. Just stop it. Stop sinning. Confess all you want, but just stop it. The Lord will be pleased. If you don't confess, but you stop it, I promise you the Lord's okay with that. If you confess, 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 and never stop it, the Lord's not okay with that. See how that works? He's not okay with that. So, some healthy habits need to come in, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, setting the standard of what God expects, for reproof, the areas that you have blown it, for correction, the ways that you can get it right. Oh, and then for instruction in righteousness so that you can extend your righteousness and continue to walk in the power of the Spirit of the Lord, Right? You need all four. It's not enough, friends, for the Bible to just give you doctrine. And you never take it seriously about your sin. It's not enough. It's not enough for the Bible to give you doctrine and you feel bad about your sin. That's not enough. It's not even enough, believe I'm going to say this, for you to understand what's right, understand how you blew it, and get it right if you have no intention of being instructed in how to keep it right. Because tomorrow you're going to be right back in the same mess. You're going to be right back in the same mess. We have a guide to sin-free living here. That's what we're looking at, right? And so he says in verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast. Well, let me just tell you, the New Testament application of the feast is the Lord's Supper. That's what it is. It's the Lord's Supper. Certainly it's not the Old Testament Passover, right? That was a Jewish legal requirement. Nobody has to go kill a lamb and put the blood on your doorpost anymore. That's a done deal. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, died once and for all, and it never needs to be repeated. Hebrews chapter 10 is very clear about that. Verse number 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. So the religions that have priests that continue to offer sacrifices, well, they need to know which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So the Old Testament Passover is fulfilled. It's done. But Jesus makes the parallel, and he says, keep the feast. Well, there's something for the New Testament church then to keep, and it's the Lord's Supper. And we see that described in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to look at it briefly. We will get to chapter 11 and look at it in detail later. Starting in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, 
that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul is telling the church, he's, This is what I received of the Lord that I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus did this the same night when he was betrayed. And you can go back and look up Matthew 26, 26 to 29. It is literally the historical reference of what Paul is talking about. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, partaking in the Old Testament Jewish legal required Passover supper. That's what he was doing. And at the end of Matthew 26, he says, Jesus said this, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there is no more literal Passover until the second coming, Bible study students, at which time it will be reinstituted. You can look that up on your own. Colossians 2 is a good place to start. But the purpose of the Lord's Supper, and this is what you need to get, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. Don't run up your sin tab, brother. Don't just keep putting it on the account and never deal with it, never deal with it, never deal with it, never deal with it. Quit doing that. The Lord's table is designed so that you will deal with it, right? Going back to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, purge yourself, we should not be judged. You know what the Lord's Supper is? It's your maintenance program for your fellowship with the Lord. That's what it is. Your fellowship with the Lord needs regular maintenance. That's what it is. He says, he goes on and he says, keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven, and here's the things that get into our lives, malice, wickedness. But the way you need to keep the feast is with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Are you sincere and truthful and honest and well-intending before the Lord? Well, then just be sincere and truthful and open before the Lord. Allow him to show you what areas of your life might need purging and just agree with him. Confess it. Forsake it. Stop it. Empty those things from yourself. Fill your heart and soul with the power of the Holy Spirit and establish habits of doing the right thing regularly, none the least of which is attending the Lord's table when the church lays it out. And it always blows me away. You'd think after 30 years it wouldn't blow me away anymore. It always blows me away how many Christian people won't come back when we have Lord's Supper night. They won't do it. This room is full enough today. If we had Lord's Supper tonight, history tells us that at least half of you won't come back. At least half of you. Why would that be the case? Why would people just not come back if the Lord instituted this, if he made this so important? 
Is it possible that they just love their sin too much? It's very important to the Lord. It's very important for you. So, as a result, this is the last thing in your notes, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance for the church, together with baptism. The only two ordinances left, the New Testament church. It's an ordinance for the church because God wants the entire community to maintain fellowship with Him and with one another. Right? So, it ensures that you as an individual are clean before God, and it also addresses the issue, are you cool with everybody else in the fellowship? Because if you're not, you need to get that right before you partake of the Lord's table. That would be tantamount to partaking of His table unworthily and bringing unnecessary judgment or damnation on yourself. Keep your accounts short with the Lord and with one another. It's about the community. It's not just about you as an individual. That's the theme of 1 Corinthians. It's the power of our community together. So in 1 Corinthians 10, it's referred to in verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we together break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ for we together being many are one bread and one body for we are all partakers of that one bread. It's the communion. It's the community. We have things in common. See the root of the word. So in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Listen, it's not that hard. It's just not that hard. You can have victory over your sin. Yes, I know, you'll never achieve sinless perfection. That's why there's a procedure. Any particular time that you fall, there's a way to get back up again. And that's the issue. It's not unlike your relationship with your spouse if you're married. Your relationship with your spouse is a very close, personal, intimate relationship. But if you don't learn how to make regular adjustments along the way, there's going to be trouble in Happy Valley, let me just tell you. Known sin must be purged. A new life must be filled and new habits must be followed. And if you will do that, you know what? You're going to have joy in your life. You're going to enjoy your Christian experience. It won't be easy, but the Lord will be with you and the fellowship will be sweet. I don't know which of those steps best describes you, but I'm going to give you the chance to respond to them. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do 